Hello everyone, and welcome to this podcast episode by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Trainees and Members Committee. My name is Dr Jonathan Bargett, and I'm a acute and general internal medicine registrar based in South East Scotland. Today I am delighted to be joined by Professor Najib Brahman. He is a professor of respiratory medicine and the director of Oxford Respiratory Trials Unit in the University of Oxford. Welcome Professor Rahman. Thank you so much for having me Johnny, pleasure to be here. Welcome. So for our listeners today our podcast is focusing on the patient that comes in to the acute medical admissions unit with symptoms and signs of pleural effusion. And I guess just to start the episode of this podcast, can you tell the listeners why this is such an important topic to be talking about today? Sure, great. Thanks, Johnny. So I I think this is important for a number of different reasons. The common issue is that this is an incredibly common presentation. So we think there are 50 to 70,000 new cases of pleural effusion in the UK per year. That's one particular issue. So this will uh, be encountered on every general medical take throughout the country, usually on a daily basis, either as the major presenting factor or as allied to another associated illness. So that's one issue. It's very common. The second issue is that it's quite difficult to pick one's way through this sometimes. So um, when I last checked, there were 67 listed causes of pleural effusion and getting to the bottom of it can be very transformative in terms of the patient pathway. Uh, And by that, I mean patient symptoms, but also the underlying diagnosis and the interventions that may be required. As as part of that, I'd also mentioned that sometimes no intervention is required and a good knowledge of the likely presenting features and the likely presenting diagnoses is important as well. Thanks, Professor Rahman. That's a really good introduction to what hopefully will be a a riveting conversation about the the management of thorough effusion in our patients that present with it. And I, I guess just so... Our listeners know what we're talking about. What what is pleural effusion and how does it develop in our patients that present to the front door? Yeah, so it's a great question. So pleural effusion is fluid between the visceral and parietal pleura, meaning between the lung and the chest wall or the rib side, that's the parietal side. And pleural effusions are in fact part of normal life. So each of us has in between 10 and 20 mils of pleural fluid per hemithorax. So the two hemithoraces are completely separated by the mediastinum and the heart. Um, And we all normally secrete just a little bit of fluid per day. But our pleura is designed such that the parietal pleura, the rib side, uh, is extremely efficient at draining the uh, secreted fluid. It's well understood by now that the parietal pleura is the major organ where this is concerned. And it secretes, as I said, about 20 to 40 mils per day in usual normal life but it has a drainage capacity of up to 1.5 or maybe even two litres per day. So when you or I see a patient with a small, in inverted commas, pleural effusion, two or 300 mils in a hemithorax, the first thing that I would point out is that the normal physiology is very significantly deranged. In order to accumulate even two or 300 mils, there must be something profoundly wrong with either the secretion or the drainage pathway, and normally speaking, it's majority in the drainage pathway, so on the parietal pleural side. And I guess what we've already alluded to is that patients can present in different ways, be it through ambulatory care or as an emergency admission. Um, in your experience, how do these patients present and, and what are the, the main symptoms that they complain of? Yeah, so again, a good question. Uh, we've got data on this now, actually, and if you look at a whole patch of patients with 
pleural effusion, then about 25% or so will have no symptoms whatsoever. And that's even with small to moderate effusions. And I think that's important and meaningful, especially when we start to talk about the physiology and the symptoms and how patients might end up with presentation and not be breathless, despite perhaps a, a hemithorax that's half full of fluid. The majority of other symptoms are reasonably obvious. So shortness of breath is the main one. I'm sure we'll come to discuss what the mechanisms of that are. And then some other symptoms can be interesting and direct one to the possible causes. So chest pain is an important one. That implies that there's inflammation of the parietal, not the visceral pleura. And then fever, loss of weight, constitutional symptoms. Cough is quite a prominent symptom, especially if there's significant um, compression of the lung. And then there are a smattering of other symptoms which are interesting and not very explained, such as a profound lack of energy or lethargy is well recognized in these patients as well. So in, in view of the symptoms that our patients present with, I guess what we're trying to work out before we even really start examining the patient is in the history, what could the underlying cause for this pleural effusion in this patient be to cause their symptoms? And what kind of differentials could we be looking at, Professor Raman? Yeah, good question. So I think the main differentials are of the main causative factors behind pleural effusion. And if we look at that epidemiologically, the number one cause of pleural effusion worldwide is heart failure and remains heart failure. Now, it's very familiar to you and your audience that this will generally be bilateral, but not very well understood that up to 30% are completely unilateral. So heart failure is definitely high on the list. Malignant pleural effusion, a major cause, and this could present in an already established diagnosis or as a de novo diagnosis. The main split there would be between a primary pleural cancer, mesothelioma, and then a whole host of secondary metastatic sites, the commonest of which are lung, prostate, breast, colorectal. And then thirdly, and importantly, pleural infection is uh, a very important diagnosis to make early because early intervention has been shown to improve outcomes and it obviously completely alters the normal just antibiotics type treatment for an underlying pneumonia. After those four big ones, then there's a smattering of other things that make up the other 64 odd causes. I think the one that I would mention in this podcast is pulmonary embolus is not well recognized, but is the fifth commonest cause of pleural effusion um, when looked at in epidemiological series. And perhaps we'll talk about that a little later. And then from then on, one gets into the, the slightly more esoteric issues, such as rheumatoid-related pleuritis, autoimmune disease, chylothorax, um, and then a number of inflammatory or drug-related conditions. So obviously from what you're saying, Professor Roman, the differential is broad. Um, is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a key practice point is that one needs to keep one's clinical hat on, especially when um, there are a number of specialist investigations that we'll go on to talk about. But maintaining the differential in one's brain is very, very helpful in order that you don't miss one of the less common diagnoses, because obviously patients themselves don't know how common diagnoses are and they'll just present the way that they present. So, yes, broad differential and keep your eyes open. So um, what I thought we would do is talk about how, obviously, during this current COVID pandemic, how that has impacted on how we're assessing patients coming in through the front door uh, with symptoms and signs of pleural effusion. Yeah, so um, it's been a huge problem, hasn't it, and had a huge effect on all services. 
if we talk about it specifically for pleural disease, there's two different components to this, I think. One is the non-specific nature of the presentation. Um, most hospitals would regard a patient coming into an emergency unit of any description with breathlessness or cough, for example, as possible COVID until proven otherwise. And I think in a pandemic such situation, that's utterly uh, reasonable and very sensible. We've just iterated that most patients with pleural effusion present exactly in that manner. So that gives us a problem right out of the gate. Is the pleural effusion part of the COVID illness? Do they not have COVID? Or do they have a dual pathology, for example, malignancy, but also COVID? So that's one major problem. The second big area of discussion is if you were to do a pleural intervention and drain a pneumothorax or a pleural effusion, how aerosol generating is that particular procedure and actually myself and others have been involved with the bts writing some guidelines on this the guidelines we wrote were very conservative with a small c thinking about protection of staff and other patients and in summary we decided that if a patient was covid positive or covid amber meaning covid status unknown that it should be considered that open drainage procedures of any description may be aerosol generating and the patient should therefore be suitably nursed with level 2 ppe that's really useful to have that in the background, um, just in view of some potential cases that I thought we could discuss and mm. explore um, those diagnostic pathways that you've alluded to, Professor Allen. So, Johnny, if I just come in very quickly on that, actually, um, to specifically address COVID and pleural disease, it should be clear that COVID is not a prominent cause of pleural effusion. So there's been large data sets now looking at how often do you find a pleural effusion in patients, for example, who've had CT scans with COVID or who've even had post-mortems with COVID. And the short answer is it's only two or three percent at best. So we don't think COVID is a pleural effusion causing disease. There's an ongoing debate as to whether COVID either acutely or in the follow-up can cause pneumomediastinum or pneumothorax, but that's for a different discussion. That's really interesting and that's very useful to know um, and clarify for our listeners. Thank you very much. So just in view of all we've discussed so far, I thought it'd be useful to just talk about some cases and hopefully we can talk about the logistics in the assessment and management of these patients. So first, I'd like to just start with a general case that um, I'm sure we'll all be familiar with that we might experience in the front door in our, our medical receiving or in our previous uh, experience in, in medical admissions unit. So this is a just a, a generic case that we could all feel that we know. I'm going to talk about a 67-year-old lady who has come in to the acute medical admissions unit with worsening breathlessness, which has really developed over the last few days, but has had a recent interaction with the respiratory service with diagnosis of pleural effusion. We know that this lady has had some pleural fluid sampling and the results are still awaited, but she, she has some red flag symptoms of, of weight loss and some frailty and decline in the background with a, a heavy smoking history with a pack year history of over 40 years. This lady lives alone, but her family are closely involved and feel that she's needing some support with her activities of daily living. And when you see her in the acute medical admissions unit, she's requiring 60% uh, venturi oxygen and is mainly complaining of breathlessness and some chest pain. So you're, you're asked as the respiratory on-call, Professor Rahman, to come and uh, advise on how best to manage this lady in view of what her wishes would be as well. Um, so that's just kind of the, 
the vignette that I begin with. What, what's your general thoughts on how to manage this lady and what we can do for her to resolve her symptoms first and foremost? Yeah, great. So I think if we adopt the approach that we discussed earlier, so thinking about the differential diagnosis and then thinking about the patient-facing symptom side, we can talk about those slightly separately. So in terms of the differential diagnosis, all of your listeners will appreciate that malignancy is very high on the list here. She's got a profound smoking history, red flag symptoms. She's already presented with a pleural effusion. And pleural effusion is uh, one of the presenting features in up to 20% of patients with lung cancer, which is what we'd be thinking about in this particular lady's case. So that's number one on the differential diagnosis. Assuming she has a unilateral effusion, then heart failure is less likely, although not impossible. And then in view of her oxygen requirement, which I'll come back to in a second, and the chest pain, it is possible, of course, to have malignancy plus a pulmonary embolus, and that should definitely be considered and thought about. I'll just give one little pointer. Plural infection is uh, obviously an infective illness, but very often does not present as that acute inflammatory response syndrome that we see with pneumonia or a cellulitis, for example. And it's perfectly reasonable and in fact quite common for patients to present with several weeks, if not months of history with weight loss, maybe fevers, but also a failure to thrive, if you like. And so I wouldn't entirely dismiss pleural infection here. It is still on the differential diagnosis and she has risk factors for pleural infection in that she's a smoker, etc. So I think the differential diagnosis remains significantly wide at the minute. Now, in terms of her presentation, I think that's really key here. She has presented because she is breathless. And so what she needs from you and me is to resolve the breathlessness. That's the reason that she's in front of us. Assuming that the chest x-ray, for example, shows a large pleural effusion, the first thing we need to work out is why is she breathless in relation to a large pleural effusion? And so it's probably worth just briefly mentioning the normal mechanism of breathlessness in patients such as this. It is not, in fact, usually related to lung compression or a VQ mismatch or a problem with oxygenation. So the fact that she's on oxygen, I would question immediately. Most patients with pleural effusion, if the lungs underneath are normal, even with a very large effusion, will have a modest reduction in oxygen saturations at best. It won't be large. And the reason is that the pleural effusion compresses the lung and causes a matched ventilation perfusion problem. So it's not VQ mismatch. Both ventilation and perfusion are reduced. That shunts all the blood to the other lung. And if the native normal lung is reasonable in function, then they can maintain their oxygen saturations. So most people, the breathlessness is in fact related to the positive pressure caused by the pleural effusion within the thorax. And it's to do with how the diaphragm is functioning. So if the diaphragm becomes flat or starts to move paradoxically, which we can see an ultrasound, that's very related to lots of breathlessness. Now, why am I going on about that? Because that directly informs what we can do to relieve her breathlessness and essentially decompressing the effusion by removing a large volume of fluid should be sufficient to reduce her breathlessness, which is the reason that she's come to see you and me. What that means in practice is we do not, for a non-infected effusion, we do not need to drain it completely to dryness. And in fact, after draining the first 1.5 or 2 litres of fluid, there will be very little incremental gain in symptom benefit thereafter. And so 
my general position in this situation is to consider doing a large volume pleural aspiration under ultrasound guidance, aiming for a litre or two litres depending on her symptoms, in order to relieve her symptoms immediately, unless she is shown to have a condition that requires a chest tube insertion uh, and treatment such as pleural infection or a pleuridesis. In her case, Johnny, one particular issue is that the pleural fluid has not yet given us um, a result, and we may go on to talk about how we take that forward. Yeah, so that, that's really useful just as a start into how we would manage this lady. We know now, actually, having discussed her case with the pathology lab that day, is that her results have shown that she has a, an adenocarcinoma found on cell pathology that was taken two weeks ago. We also know that actually there's concern about her ongoing oxygen requirements after the initial fluid removal of a litre and a half, as you suggest. And also there's a social history from her daughter that she's now not really managing at home and unfortunately is, is not really managing to look after herself at home. And so her daughter's concerned that she needs to come into hospital. Um, so how, how does that change things in view of the information that we have? Yeah, so I, I think those are all very important points and would certainly perhaps take us off the normal ambulatory pathway that we try to adopt with these patients. So normally, as I've just said, we would try to conduct a short-term low-risk procedure, remove the symptoms and get the patient home in order to uh, bottom out the diagnosis with the cytology and the CT scan and then thereafter see them in the clinic perhaps a week or two after to talk about definitive treatment both oncologically but also for the pleural disease. Those parameters that you've talked about Johnny certainly do change the way in which we would approach this particular lady. So if I just take them in turn the first is that adenocarcinoma in the pleural fluid is of course a positive cytology, a positive diagnosis but it's not sufficient as yet to do everything we need to do. So back in the old days, that would be sufficient to call this a non-small cell lung cancer, for example. We need two further bits of information in the modern age. One, confirmation that it's definitely a lung primary source, because that, of course, changes what treatment she might have. And very importantly for adenocarcinoma, we need to know if there's sufficient malignant cells for our pathology colleagues to look for driver mutations. That includes things like EGFR, that very critically changes the treatment pathway, the prognosis and the likelihood of response. So although on the surface of it, we've diagnosed adenocarcinoma, probably lung primary, and it's stage four in the pleura, we may in fact not yet have enough information to treat this woman in the way that would be optimal for her. And so we need to clarify with the pathology lab that we have enough information. If we don't, she may well need a pleural biopsy or similar. Now, the second point that you made was on the oxygen requirement, and that is important. If having removed the fluid, she still is hypoxic, then there is something wrong with her contralateral lung and probably the lung on the effusion side as well. Now, given the history you've given me, I would expect that she may have some degree of obstructive lung disease, maybe COPD, for example, given the smoking history. Another option is that she has the dual pathologies of a pulmonary embolus, and I would certainly wish to exclude that with a CT pulmonary angiogram and then finally we should give thought as to whether she's normally a bit hypoxic and whether the breathlessness has resolved but she's still hypoxic in which case that's the state of her underlying lung and then finally uh, and perhaps most importantly is her home situation 
some of the interventions that we have to offer patients with malignant effusion, for example, the home catheters or indwelling pleural catheters, they do depend very much on whether a patient is able to manage those treatments at home. And it sounds to me as if we need to consider that very carefully. In addition, it sounds like she needs to be admitted for social reasons, to use that awful um, set of words, but we probably do need to admit her. Having said all of that, I still don't think that you need to drain her to dryness yet unless you have definitive proof of a final oncological diagnosis. And then it would be reasonable to put a chest tube in rather than a, a pleural aspiration. And then on this admission, while we sort out all of her other issues with oxygen and the social situation, we could then conduct a pleurodesis as well. So we, we do that CTPA, as you say, Professor Raman, and we, we do identify that this lady has evidence of pulmonary embolism, although not enough to cause any cardiovascular collapse. And this lady has become quite lethargic, which just with investigations that have been happening. And with discussion with her and her daughter, the main thing in her opinion is just to get home um, and have time to think about things whenever she's well enough to get home. How does this influence your your approach and your discussions with this lady? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and again, something that we see clinically very often, don't we? Uh, I think our priority for patient care should always be focused on the patient's wishes. Of course it should. And it is easy to rarefy this diagnosis according to uh, parameters which perhaps aren't important to the patient, such as the stage and so on and so forth. If her wish is to leave hospital and be given time to think about it, then we do have interventions in front of us that might enable that. So treating the pulmonary embolus, of course, draining the effusion and maybe having an indwelling catheter optimally before we start the anticoagulation or in light of the anticoagulation for pulmonary embolus. She is likely to need low molecular weight heparin if she's got metastatic disease, for example. Then those would be two interventions and I would be I would have a degree of confidence that those two treatments may well improve her symptoms and her general state of health such that she would be in a position firstly to make a good decision for herself about what further treatment she might like but secondly that her performance status would be good enough that she would be amenable to some form of oncological therapy perhaps something like a, a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. So that, that's a really useful way to assess and um, think about how we're uh, managing difficult cases like this. And I guess one of the things you talked about was the indwelling pleural catheter. What advantages and what challenges does this method of treatment give us in helping our patients? Yeah, so the, uh, the indwelling catheter is a, a new treatment. Well, when I say new, it's been in widespread use for the last 10 years, but it's, it's the newest intervention in pleural disease for the last 50 years. It's got clear-cut advantages, but before I uh, enumerate them, it also has significant disadvantages, and we should be very careful that we don't just sell the new treatment uh, because it's more convenient for us as physicians, and this really should all be very patient-centred. Why do I say that? Because most patients that we see have stage 4 cancer. That means that our treatments are palliative. Now, I don't apologize for saying that. It means that we're aimed at symptoms and that's worthy and important, but that means that we should take the patient perspective wherever possible. So its advantages are over, for example, talc pleurodesis, are that we can implant these as a day case. Patients don't spend any time in hospital if there are no complications. Talc pleurodesis has a failure rate, especially when the lung is trapped. That means that the lung is unable to expand because of fibrin or malignant covering. And in talc pleurodesis, the failure rate is around 20%. 
In indwelling catheters, there is no such failure rate because it doesn't matter whether the lung is trapped or not, you can still drain the effusion. And the patient, importantly, is in control of their own symptoms. So when they feel more breathless, they can ask the district nurse to come and drain them. And we tend to talk about it as a lifelong treatment. So there should not be a need for any further intervention. So those are the clear advantages. Now, there are also disadvantages. So the piece of plastic implanted in the chest, of course, offers an infection risk over the three, six, 12 months that it will be in place. That infection risk is low in the region of 5% over around six months. And treating those infections is usually straightforward. So usually we would just treat with oral or intravenous antibiotics and not have to admit the patient or not even have to remove the catheter only in very small numbers. So that's uh, one issue. Um, the main issue from my perspective is that this is a constant reminder to the patient that they have cancer, that they have a life-ending problem, and that there are, I think, significant psychosocial implications to that. One of them is that the patients often have to wait in for the district nurse to come and visit. That whole thing can take two or three hours. And if we've taken somebody who's pretty um, fit and active and then pinned them to being in the house for six or eight hours, three times a week when they're going to be drained, I think that's an important outcome to discuss with our patients. So it does have an implication for their abilities for the future. Um, the final thing I would say, Johnny, very briefly on this is uh, we now have a randomized trial that shows us that it is safe and effective to give talc through the indwelling pleural catheter. So just very briefly, we would place an indwelling catheter, drain the patient for a couple of weeks, if their lung is expansile and it's coming up to the chest wall, we would then bring them in as an outpatient and give talc as an outpatient. And that seems to be the solution to all of our ills. But I should point out that by doing the indwelling catheter talc, the pleurodesis success rate is about 50%, whereas inpatient pleurodesis with a chest tube, the success rate is in the region of 80%. So to my mind, they are very equivalent in terms of symptom management, breathlessness, and so on with some positives and some negatives compared to talc pleuridesis. And honestly, in my practice, we talk openly to the patients about what their preference is. Would you prefer an inpatient treatment for a few days with a high likelihood of success? Or would you prefer an outpatient treatment that means you'll have to probably do this for the rest of your life? And that's more or less the discussion we have. That's really important to highlight, Professor Roman. I think it's really crucial that we can give our patients that information in an offensive manner, but also in a, in a fully informed manner with their family and if they wish. Is there anything or any other information that you would be able to signpost our listeners to and that they can help our patients if they're seeing patients like this? Yeah, of course. So there's several bits of information I would ask listeners to look at. So there's obviously the BTS guidelines, which are very good on this. There was a recent American Thoracic Society guideline on management of malignant effusion, which um, is much more recent than the 2010 BTS guidelines, um, and it's free to download on the um, ATS website. Uh, the BTS guidelines are being updated by myself, Nick Maskell, and others, um, and that should be available later in this year. And then there are now finally patient-facing information stores, and indeed a really good website that's called My Plural Effusion, um, which is about the journey that patients take through decision-making about pleural effusion that summarizes much better than I have just done what the pros and cons are of various treatments. 
Um, you can find that online and uh, it was constructed by Matt Everson, who's a colleague of mine up in Manchester. Really good resource that you can just ask your patients to look at on their smartphone and they can count their way through uh, the different scenarios and uh, at the end of a certain amount of time on the website you should be well informed about what the pros and cons are. That's really helpful and um, it's been really useful to talk through this kind of particular presentation that our patients might come into the, the front door of the hospital with. I thought we would just leave it there with that presentation and perhaps discuss another one if that's okay. Sure. The next patient, I know that certainly we've discussed the approach to the malignant fusion that might uh, present with the patient um, that we're assessing, but I'm going to take a different tact and I'm just going to give you a history. We can say that we saw a gentleman in the acute medical admissions unit, he comes in overnight with, again, suspected COVID um, because of fever and breathlessness. We, we know that this gentleman in his late 60s has recently actually had community-acquired pneumonia, which was treated as such in the community, with a presumptive diagnosis of pneumonia having not had a chest x-ray. Now, the main things that have been sort of highlighted in the history in the Clarkin were that this gentleman's really not been quite right on the oral antibiotics um, after two weeks of finishing his treatment. So we're now three weeks into his presentation. His appetite's not great. He's complaining of some pain. It sounds polaritic. And he's also complaining of some gradually worsening breathlessness, but also some, some fevers and some sweats. Still productive of some sputum, which is um, sometimes blood stained, but his main symptoms are of pain and of fever. So the information that we have in the front door from his physiology is that he's got an elevated respiratory rate around 20. He's on about 35% venturi oxygen. He's got a normal blood pressure around 130 over 100. So just elevated because of pain. Heart rate's about 95 to 100 sinus rhythm. And he has had fevers on admission. So his temperature is up to 39. And it's not really improved since then over the 12 hours since coming in. We know that he's got actually a relatively uh, minimal past medical history um, and there is no history of any smoking but he does drink about 14 to sometimes 21 units of alcohol per week. So just bearing all that in mind the key things are the fever, the ongoing pain and breathlessness having been on antibiotics previously for a community diagnosed community requirement. What's your general impression on that Professor Raman and, and what, what are your thoughts about this case? Yes, of course. So again, a com very common presentation, this one. Um, I mean, our thoughts should immediately move to whether this man has pleural infection. He's got the clear risk factor of a, what sounds like a community-acquired pneumonia three weeks ago, and uh, a three-week-odd grumbling history would be rather typical of this. I think the key presenting symptom that I'm interested in is the pleuritic pain. So without examining him and without doing an x-ray, we already know that his parietal pleura must be involved in whatever process he has because the visceral pleura is insensate. So if anybody has pleuritic pain with pulmonary embolus or with pneumonia, you already know that there is parietal pleural involvement and that makes the likelihood of this uh, being a pleural effusion related to inflammation or infection much, much higher. Now, he sounds ill. Um, he's got a degree of work of breathing. He's got fever. Um, he's getting up to being tachycardic and he has an oxygen requirement. So I think it's very likely we'll need to admit this patient. And my first priority is some basic radiology. So that would be chest x-ray and bedside ultrasound to try to work out if he has a plural collection. And thereafter, our next priority would need to be to 
sample the pleural collection in order to confirm whether we have established pleural infection or complicated paraneumonic effusion or an uncomplicated effusion and a pneumonia that is not resolving, which has its own differential diagnosis. Just before we move on from that, there does remain a differential diagnosis here of malignancy and pulmonary embolus. Specifically, I'm saying that because of the bloodstained sputum and the pleuritic pain, um, and he's of the right age to consider a new malignancy as well. That's really useful just to get, again, those initial differentials, which we need to be thinking about whenever we're assessing these patients. He, he does actually start to divulge that he's been producing a significant amount of, of green and, and rusty sputum during his, his two-week history of illness. And we do that x-ray and it shows that he's got dense right lower lobe pneumonia, uh, consolidative pneumonia change with what looks like a, a loculated effusion, but otherwise his chest x-ray doesn't show any other abnormality. I guess the things that you mentioned were you would do a bedside thoracic ultrasound. To, for our listeners that aren't really familiar with that, what, what, what does that show us and then how can that change our impression of this gentleman's management and assessment in his, his care? Yeah, so I think there's two aspects to that, Johnny. One is that the bedside ultrasound is a far more sensitive technique for detecting pleural fluid than the chest X-ray, and for some sonographic features is more sensitive than ultrasound. So the chest X-ray, an erect AP film, can detect around two or 300 mils of pleural fluid at a minimum. Um, that's what will blunt your costophrenic angle whereas the thoracic ultrasound can detect all the way down to two to five mils of pleural fluid. So there's a very big difference in sensitivity. Uh, your question implication is that it has other diagnostic sensitivities, and it does. So, for example, you've mentioned loculated fluid. Um, I would use the term septated, as in fluid that is divided up into pockets by fibrin, and ultrasound is the best imaging technique that we have to determine if fluid is septated much more sensitive than CT scan, for example. And a septated pleural fluid collection in this context is highly suggestive of a patient with pleural infection. The other aspect is we um, now no longer conduct any form of pleural intervention for fluid, except in a dire emergency without the use of thoracic ultrasound. There are very large data sets of over 60,000 thoracentesis that show that use of thoracic ultrasound as routine reduces complications such as pneumothorax and hemorrhage. So it's, it's, I guess it's really worth highlighting that thoracic ultrasound is, is mandatory, essentially. Is that, is that right, Professor Raman? Yeah, no, I think, I think that's right. And um, in fact, the BTS have just earlier last year come up with a training guideline so that we can ensure that all hospitals have some form of thoracic ultrasound competent individual present all the time. Uh, and that includes a training guideline for people who want to be at the basic level of operation. And I don't mean that insultingly, I, I mean that uh, encouragingly in that folks who are perhaps doing acute medicine, etc., can train to a standard where they can recognize pleural fluid and there should be a pathway to refer on to people with more expertise if required. That's really helpful. And um, I'm sure that we can provide some more information for our listeners in the synopsis. Continuing on with the case then. So we know that this gentleman has, on your assessment of his his ultrasound appearance, he has a fusion and it looks complex. You said there's some septations. He has had results from his blood cultures and it's showing that he's potentially grown streptococcus and he was treated as such as per the hospital guidelines for 
community acquired pneumonia. Leading on from that, his blood work shows that he's got an elevated CRP of over 350 and his white cell count is elevated at around 30 um, with raised uh, um, reactive markers such as ferritin and fibrinogen. But otherwise, renal function is still maintained and there's no coagulopathy. In view of that, we've been able to get on top of his pain um, with some simple analgesia, but he still has some complaints of pleuritic chest pain whenever he's trying to take a breath in. Where do we go from here? So um, that's really important information. So let's assume that he has pleural infection, um, or rather we, we need to, despite all of that information, we still need to establish whether the pleural fluid collection is frankly infected or just sympathetic to the associated effusion. And the reason that that's important is if it's frankly infected in any way, then it needs to be drained and it needs to be drained as soon as possible. Whereas if it's a so-called uncomplicated perineumonic effusion, then one needs to just consider why he has experienced essentially antibiotic failure with what looks like streptococcus pneumoniae infection. So let's just play those two scenarios out. The first thing I would do is a bedside ultrasound and then a consented for pleural aspiration, which would need to be small volume, 50 mils or 100 mils, with immediate assessment of the pleural fluid characteristics. What do I mean by that? I mean that we should look at it macroscopically. If it's purulent or turbid, then we've made the diagnosis of so-called empyema or pleural infection, and then the patient needs to have a chest tube inserted right away. If it is not macroscopically purulent or turbid, it's in that situation when one would wish to measure the blood gas uh, of the pleural fluid, specifically looking at the pleural pH and pleural glucose. And if the pH was less than 7.2 or the glucose, if he's not diabetic, was less than about 2.5 millimoles, then that is highly suggestive of a complicated perineumonic effusion. And that would, should result in chest tube insertion and admission for pleural infection treatment. If none of those are true, then he, as in he has a pH above 7.2 effusion and uh, it's not purulent, then this is probably a complicated perineumonic effusion. And my attention would then shift not to draining the effusion, but to why he has failed treatment for a widely sensitive um, microbe, uh, i.e. streptococcus pneumonia. So we then need to think about our differential for that. Does he have an obstructive lesion? Is there an underlying cancer? Does he have co-infection with something else? Does he have an immune deficiency? You mentioned assessing the pH and looking at the appearance of the fluid that comes out. And when you do your aspiration, Professor Raman, it does look purulent and <laughs> it looks uh, bloodstained and very frank in its purulent nature. What do we need to do now? So we certainly do not need to measure the pH. I'll just make that very clear. Measuring pH in purulent fluid doesn't help you in your next treatment and it breaks the blood gas analyzer. So I definitely wouldn't do that. So we've now diagnosed pleural infection. This patient now needs to have a chest tube inserted. Um, that should be done under ultrasound guidance and it should be done uh, by somebody competent with a tube of generally 12 French or greater in size. You don't need to use a very large surgical drain, but 12 French drains have been shown in previous case series to be adequate for the treatment of pleural infection. So that's the first thing. They need to be referred to the respiratory medicine inpatient team, put on a ward that can competently manage chest tubes. And then we need to think carefully about sending the fluid off to the laboratory 
uh, for further assessment of the pleural fluid microbiology. And in order to do that, the best way to do that is to send a plain tube, so that's the standard urine culture container, and a few mils in whatever your blood culture bottle system is. So Bactec is one that's very widely used. Sending it in both of those medium increases the diagnostic yield by about 20%. And so that takes us from a positive rate with purulent fluid of about 50% with a plain tube to about 70%. So that's a very useful thing to do. And for now, until we get the sensitivities back, I would broaden his antibiotic treatment. So we need to cover gram positives, a few gram negatives, and anaerobes, which are known to co-infect with streptococcus and with staphylococcus, for example. So I would, as an example, use a penicillin that can cover staphylococcus, such as coamoxiclav or a cephalosporin, depending on your hospital policy. And I would also use a, an anaerobe cover, such as metronidazole. That's, that's really useful just to highlight the antimicrobial management. And I guess that's really important in our antimicrobial stewardship hat as well. So we, we know that obviously uh, the patient has then moved on to the respiratory ward, but just from the general medical um, interest and the approach that the respiratory team might take, what's your experience in what, what might happen with these patients, Professor Ryan? Yeah, so the, the pathway for a patient like this is, is pretty well understood now due to a lot of work and a lot of um, clinical trials that have been done in this area. So from here, we think that about 80% of patients with a chest tube, with antibiotics, with good care of the chest tube and uh, good general medical care will recover and the fluid will get out of their chest and they will get out of hospital, which is great. Now, the remaining 20% may not do so well and we might end up either with treatment failure at 48 hours where the fluid won't come out, um, they still have a very high inflammatory profile or they're swinging fevers. And in that case, we have two options now. First old fashioned, if you like, option is to refer them to thoracic surgery. Um, our thoracic surgical colleagues are now very skilled with video assisted thoracoscopic surgery. So that's VATS rather than the large thoracotomies that used to be required. Um, and that's the ultimate rescue treatment for patients with pleural infection, uh, no doubt. So it's a very necessary treatment. Nowadays, we have a further treatment option, which is intrapleural enzyme therapy. So that's a combination of intrapleural tissue plasminogen activator as a fibrinolytic and DNAs, which helps to reduce viscosity and get rid of biofilms. And that combination has been shown to reduce the need for surgery by around 80% in a randomized trial. So we generally would manage them on the respiratory ward for 24 or 48 hours. If they're not making a good response, we would in parallel start them on the intrapleural enzyme therapy and refer them to surgery at the same time. Now, if the patient was extremely young and fit and was clearly a surgical candidate, we might skip the enzyme therapy and refer them directly to our surgical colleagues. Having said all of that and been rather positive, it should be clear that pleural infection has a significant mortality. So the mortality is in the region of 15 to 20% at three months. And we do now know the factors associated with a poor prognosis. Those include increasing age, lower albumin at presentation, infection source of being in hospital, having a higher urea and having non-purulent fluid. And that, those five parameters are something that we call the RAPID score. Um, that was published last year by one of my colleagues, John Corcoran, and very reliably tells you the risk of the patient's mortality. That's really useful for our listeners to get an insight into how these patients are 
prognosticated. I, in my experience, I've maybe come across a couple of patients who have had no bacteriology grown, but maybe a week down the line have actually grown tuberculosis microorganisms or mycobacteria. And I was just wanting to get your thoughts on, on how that might change the management um, and how, how it will guide how we then refer or change our treatment in a patient like this. Yeah, so that's a great question, Johnny. And look, all respiratory physicians are and should be obsessed with TB because if you forget about it, then it, it catches you blindsided. And um, there are some baseline features that can lead us to thinking about TB. So a history of alcoholism, obviously a history of foreign tra travel and to some extent um, ethnic background. Uh, these things all increase the risks of it being TB pleuritis, as we call it. The pleural fluid, when you drain it initially, is usually very indicative. And TB pleural fluid is usually, usually not purulent. So it's usually not frank pus. And usually it has a glucose that's low, but not that low. So you're looking at uh, levels of between two and three in somebody who's not diabetic if their blood sugar was about five or six. So those things can be very indicative, as is a very high protein. In order to achieve a diagnosis of TB, the best way to find that is to do a pleural biopsy as opposed to um, just a pleural aspirate. So it's very critical that we think about these things early so we can get the pleural biopsy done. And we can do that with ultrasound guidance if necessary um, at the same time as the drain insertion. If we find TB, as you're implying, it completely changes the treatment paradigm. Obviously, we would seek to move on to triple or quadruple therapy for TB, depending on their underlying risk factors of resistance. We'd want some samples in the lab in order that we can identify exactly uh, what resistance patterns the particular mycobacterium has or doesn't have. And then generally speaking, drainage is not a major part in the long term of TB uh, pleural infection treatment usually the TB chemotherapy will resolve most things. Having said that, if patients have a large, very inflammatory effusion at baseline, we drain it to dryness first before starting them on the TB treatment. So it's completely transformational in terms of the patient journey. That is really useful and fascinating to, to learn more about how our, our patients can present with pleural effusion and the challenges that it brings in assessing what the, the diagnosis is, Professor Roman. John, can I just mention one other thing that I think is often forgotten? Sorry to interrupt sure. you. So where TB is concerned, it's really interesting. If you look at case series of patients who have TB pleuritis, so that's TB in the pleura, fairly obviously, if you do their sputum, if they're producing sputum, then up to 20, 15 to 20% will have positive sputum microbiology for TB. And so that's a, that's a test never to miss if you're suspicious of TB, even though it's in the wrong space. And the reason is that they've often got apical granuloma that you just haven't detected, but that can really shortcut your way to a diagnosis. So if you think of TB, then please send three sputums to the lab specifically asking for acid fast bacilli in a TB culture. That's a great reminder. As you say, it's something that we really need to have in the back of our, our minds when we are thinking of any respiratory infection. And, and I, I guess I'd also highlight that we should be doing, we're considering presenting patients for testing for HIV in that case as well. Just to conclude then, so is there anything else that you, you feel is, is relevant to our discussion? And what would your, your main take-home messages for our listeners listening to our podcast today, Professor Roman? Yeah, sure. Thank you, Johnny. So, I mean, this is a potentially complex area, but if one thinks very carefully about the differential diagnosis and 
the way to help the patient in a patient-centered manner, then you're going to get through this fine. There are really good guidelines on how to approach the undiagnosed effusion interventions for malignant effusion or pleural infection that I'm sure will be part of the information given with this podcast that can direct you. I think the most important points that we've made are if a patient attends with symptoms of breathlessness from pleural effusion, then a key practice point is you can relieve those symptoms in general by conducting a large volume aspirate and not placing a chest tube and try to shift them out to a day case outpatient ambulatory setting um, what we would tend to do is to do the large volume aspirate, send them home. While the pleural fluid is cooking in the lab, we get an outpatient CT scan, uh, which helps to narrow the differential, and then see them with all that gathered information a week later. And we only try and admit patients when they're ill, obviously, or when we know what the definitive pleural intervention should be. And early on in the uh, diagnosis, we just don't know what the definitive intervention should be. So that's my first practice point. The second, I think, is we need to be very suspicious about pleural infection because our our aggression of treatment and our speed is very different in pleural infection than it is in other pleural diseases. So I would be unhappy with a patient with suspected pleural infection not having a chest tube inserted for a, a 24-hour period, for example. That area has become more complicated, correctly so, because it, it's a requirement to have ultrasound skills and so on to do that but it should certainly shouldn't wait for a weekend but one will only push uh, our colleagues in radiology for example to, to do that if we're thinking this is pleural infection as opposed to a malignant effusion and then finally early involvement of respiratory teams i think can be very helpful they can direct you towards their ambulatory pathways um, and uh, the investigations and hopefully uh, an efficient service for both you and your patients that's great and it's been absolutely fantastic chatting with you, Professor Rahman. Those points were really useful and certainly I've learned a lot about how um, our patients can come in and how we should be managing patients with pleural effusion. So thank you very much, Professor Rahman. My pleasure. To our listeners, thank you for listening. And I, I would like to just conclude by saying that our listeners can feel free to leave any comments via our Instagram or our Twitter pages. So RCP Eden trainees or RCP Eden and attached to this podcast we will provide some further information as we've discussed so once again thank you very much Professor Rahman. That's my pleasure nice to talk to you Johnny.